I also believe you learn more from a person's eyes than what comes out of their mouth. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom, and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Well, Coffee Potters, this week we're getting into fix-it jobs. What do you do when things go wrong? And our guest is Mr. Fix-It himself, as is widely known. Uh, That is Ron Gorsey. Now, Ron is a man uh, that some of you might know from some quite high-profile Australian turnaround stories. The Melbourne Storm rugby team post the salary cap rorting scandal, uh, the Melbourne Polytechnic financially on its knees, uh, Federation Square, you name it, Ron has been at the helm of some quite extraordinary turnarounds. In this conversation, we delve into topics like how do you fix a culture when it's gone sour? What is it as a leader that you need to do to successfully get people, particularly those who are disengaged, to buy into a vision? How do you manage your energy, your plan and your communications when you're going through a really challenging or maybe even a crisis period? There's a lot in this conversation and it's full of rich organisational examples. I hope you enjoy and I hope you take a lot out of what Ron has to share. He's Ron Gorsey. Well, Ron Gorsey, thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pods. I've been so pumped for this chat. Likewise. I appreciate you making the time. I want to go back to the start because we're going to get into all the Mr. Fix-It um, conversation a little bit later on. That's sort of the reputation you have, not just about town, but around Australia. Um, but I find it really interesting and something I didn't know till we first met that it actually, for someone who's got such a career in business and whose professional profile I would have totally believed spanned the entirety of their working life, you actually started as a teacher. I did. How did it go from teaching to business? What was kind of the catalyst for the career change? So as a teacher, I always prided myself on uh, being innovative and different. I was using techniques that that other teachers seemed to uh, not be using at the time. And one day I noticed, uh, this is the early 80s, just to date me, (laughs) date myself. Uh, There I was in the early 80s and this room had been set aside for all these Apple IIe computers to arrive. And as I saw them being set up in the room, I went to the computer teacher and asked Andrew, what are they for? And he said, we're going to do some programming. We're going to teach the boys how to program. And I said, what's programming? Right? Because I didn't know how to spell IT. I knew nothing about it. And he explained to me what it was. And I said, so if I program something, could I use it as a teaching tool in the classroom? So I gave him an example. I'm doing a simulation at the moment on how to sell buy and sell shares on the stock market for the year 10 students. Can I build a program that simulates the buying and selling of shares, stock fluctuations, all those sort of things into a program? And he saw that as a real challenge. So he went and developed something, basically developed a little game with that simulation, with the metrics behind it. And he he said, is this sort of what you mean? And that was the foundation of building a program that we eventually used in the classroom, tested developed, put on the market, and we were selling it in those days for about $70 a pop. And uh, I ended up on the speaking circuit for the uh, Commerce uh, Teachers Association. And from the speaking circuit, 
came into the view of a uh, computer company that was writing these programs. Mm -hmm. And 18 months later, I was working for Microsoft escorting Bill Gates around Melbourne. And, wow, that's uh, quite the jump. It was quite a jump, but it was an opportunity and it all came from uh, trying to be innovative. So when do you work out that you're a Mr Fix-It? I think um, and I was there during the period of time when ANSET went under and ANSET was one of our key clients. So that created what would we call a significant problem. I bet. Right? Key account disappeared. That's it. So at that time, I think the reputation of Mr Fixit was pretty much entrenched at that, at that mm -hmm. point. Uh, I was given challenges to resolve and the executives kept looking for ways to, uh, to engage Ron. And I was, regardless of what my title was, I seemed to have, play a number of roles across the organisation. Over the years, I was uh, subsequent to that, I was brought into various challenges post Telstra, mm -hmm. and I was being used by corporates and and um, executive friends of mine to help them with issues, and it's just something I naturally fitted into. And then um, when I got hired to uh, do Melbourne Storm, the Mister Fixer title became a lot more public. <laughs> <laughs> I bet, and I want to touch on that in a minute, but I'm interested. You talk about how you were continually brought into challenges. How did you evaluate for yourself what challenge you wanted to say yes to? Because obviously you're coming into places where there's a lot not working and that's normally the stuff people look for as factors to prove up this is an organisation I want to join. Is it a good culture? Is there good leadership? What have you? What factors do you look for to go, yep, that's got all the right criteria for me to step in? Yep. And it is a fine balance, Holly, because I, I, balance, I love doing stuff that people say can't be done. Mm -hmm. By the same token, not everything can be done. Mm. So I don't take on missions impossible but I do like doing things that people seem to think can't be done. So to answer your question, I think I've honed a, a qualification criteria that says, okay, well, has a, what, what sort of people are involved here? What is the actual problem itself? What are the solution options? So I go through a whole lot of criteria to decide whether something I want to be involved in. And then at the end of the day, am I passionate about this? Is this something I really believe in? Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a, real strong, a really strong belief system. And if I believe in myself and I can back myself in and I know I can get a job done, then then that's what I launch myself into. Nice. So Melbourne Storm, I'm interested to begin with on where you begin fighting a fire. So you arrive at Melbourne Storm, the whole salary cap saga is well and truly alive and kicking. Um, how do you land on day one and start? Where do you begin on something like that? Well, to put things into perspective, Please. I arrive well after the salary cap broadings um, that occurred or announced. So that happened on April, uh, April, the, uh, April the 22nd, they called it 22-4, mm -hmm. and I arrived in July. Mm -hmm. So by that stage, the problems had started to mount. News Limited, who owned the club, had discovered there were all sorts of other issues to be resolved as well. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I didn't know how to spell NRL. I knew nothing about the game. Where's my mind? So, uh, so I had to go on a very steep learning curve couple of things for clarification. For starters, my arrival didn't have any impact at all on the way the players played. Right? They were a sensational group of players uh, surrounded by a sensational group of coaches. The main issue there was the salary cap ruling had effectively undermined their integrity and, and raised questions over their ability to win premierships and, and two of those were taken from them. Uh, I came to the conclusion very, very quickly that the salary cap ruling had nothing to do with the way these, these players were committed to the club and, and wanted to be at the club and, uh, and the way they played. The issue, though, became did they want to stay at the club that had betrayed them, that had taken their premiership or, or created an environment where the premiership was taken from them? A big trust issue. 
that trust issue ex extended to the administration, to the sponsors. Mm -hmm. So I walked into an environment where there were some significant trust issues. Uh, there were people who felt betrayed mm -hmm. by what had occurred. Uh, supporters who believed there was an NRL plant there to close the club down. Mm -hmm. uh, so the supporters um, didn't trust the, the new executive coming in, especially given he knew nothing about the game. And then you got sponsors who had reputational issues that uh, walked away from the club as well. So there was a, it was a significant environment of, it was of the distrust. Storm, the <laughs> and the term has been used. But apart from the obvious role, which was to allow news to divest of the club, and to do that, it had to be in a position of, of some standing. Yeah. So, so, therefore, we had to restore the reputation um, commercially. Whilst there was significant success on the field, I can't say the same of off the field. Right, so commercially, you'd question how successful Storm was at that, that time. And even if there hadn't been a salary cap broadening issue, the reality is commercially it wasn't in a strong position. Mm -hmm. So that was the environment. Um, and whilst the primary purpose was to ensure that the, the successful divestment of the club, for me, to successfully divest of the club, we needed success on the field. To have success on the field, I needed everyone to be behind us, including the players staying, the coaches staying. I needed everything to be stabilised pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So that was the environment that uh, came into. My normal modus operandi is to spend the first part of... You know, I break it into three segments. First segment is to listen and learn. So I spoke to as many people as possible. I tried to learn as quickly as possible and understand everything, including the game, as quickly as possible. The second part or second phase is to then put in place a plan that I know that will resonate and that I can get support for. And then the third part is the execution. And in terms of that, that time frame, I mean, it, it's probably a little bit circumstantial, but do you give yourself a, a general frame for how, how quickly you want to have moved at least through stage one and two? Well, at the time, uh, the owners and my new chairman and new board were saying that we think this is a five-year exercise, right? So the time frame was five years. Yep. Uh, two years and ten months later, we were able to divest of the club. The way I think about it is sort of in building something, we often, like if we're building a bit of furniture, we've, we've got a, a set of instructions for how you go about building that so it achieves the right outcome. Is there a similar roadmap you can follow for how to fix something? Well, Working on off those phases, the very first, I'm big on mind maps, and as, as I said earlier, I, I, I listen and learn. So for me, I needed to understand what the issues were. And what I discovered very, very quickly was the salary cap rorting was part of the issue, but commercially we had other issues. We, whatever, we had, I think, uh, 9,000 members at the time, and 1,000 had returned their memberships. Wow. By the time I left, we were at 16,000. And today, post my uh, my time there, the club's heading for 25,000. <clears> so it was really important to put in place the building blocks that would allow it to be successful in the marketplace. And I'm delighted that the new owners have, have executed a plan to, to really maximise the potential of Melbourne Storm and they've gone on to win other premierships as well. So I, I think that's um, that in itself is a legacy um, that started with the foundations of getting the culture right, the business right, at Melbourne Storm, and I got the same thing when I went to Fed Square, and I, went, I got the same thing when I went to Melbourne Polytechnic. You know, I got Ron, we're not a business, we're a footy club. Mm. You know, Fed Square, we're not a business, we're, we're a public place. Melbourne Polytechnic, we're not a business, we're, we're an institution, an education institution. See, for me, it's really about 
understanding you don't have a public institution, you don't, or you don't have a public place, you don't have a footy club unless you get the commercials right. So you've got to have success off the field as well as on the field. So we went through all the metrics. So to answer your question, I'm not big on handbooks, by the way. I'm very, I'm terrible with handbooks. <laughs> but there are some roadmaps, and that is about understanding um, what I call organisational optimization. So what are all my levers? What are the things I can work on? What are the things I can change? And, and with those levers, I then work out what it would look like if we optimise it. So, for example, if we filled every seat in the stadium and we sold every membership and every single supporter had two pieces of merchandise, et cetera, et cetera, if we maximise that, what would be the revenue potential of the organisation? That's what I call organisational optimization. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're not going to get there, then why not? What's the gap and what's the plan to fill the gap? So they're the, that's typically the roadmap that I work off. So it sort of helps you set the goal for what success looks like? Correct, because whilst the term Mr Fix-It has been used, the term I prefer is Mr Full Potential. <laughs> I like that. But the media doesn't, so they don't use it. <laughs> but the reality is I look at what is the full potential of, of an organisation or of a person or a, mm-hmm. a person in their role and then work backwards from there. Uh, where are they in there? And, and if you want to talk about roadmaps, I used to use the Melways technique to, to, to show my age. And the Melways technique is... And just for audience context, they're the old roadmaps of Melbourne, right? Because I, I didn't Before actually know what Melways was. I now, I've been informed. <laughs> Correct. So that was, where am I now? Yep. Where do I want to be? And what's the best way to get there? Mm-hmm. We don't need to complicate simplicity. It is really as simple as that. So the, the bit um, you touched on as well there is the the cultural piece and the criticality of that, you know, next to the commercial as sort of being the two big buckets. What's your philosophy on uh, sort of the right people being on the bus in the right seats? So often when you're walking in, I'm imagining there's significant disengagement. There's probably a few people who are part of the problem and the reason the organisation is where it is. What's your philosophy on... Um, sort of, I guess, forgiveness and opportunity to improve versus, okay, we need to move some people on and how you, how you assess what you need to do with the people situation. Yeah, and that's a real process that you need to go through. And, and again, that comes from the conversations. So part of the learning is to go and talk to people and listen to what they have to say and how they say it. Mm. I also believe you learn more from a person's eyes than what comes out of their mouth. So, I like that. So you watch, you observe, and you, you get a feeling very quickly whether they are indeed on the bus or off the bus or if they think they're on the bus but you need to get them off the bus. So you draw conclusions, I think, pretty quickly. One of my skills, I believe, is to, to um, read people fairly quickly. Having said that, I also believe in higher, slow, fire, fast. So you take your time to make sure you've got the right people on board and you give them every opportunity. But it doesn't take long for people to reveal whether they are truly on the bus or off the bus. And what are your non-negotiables? When it comes to being invited on the bus, what do you need to see or what do you need to not see um, in order for the values fit to be right? They firstly need to believe in the vision. Right? So that, I think, stems from good leadership. The leader needs to clearly articulate what that vision is, get the buy-in, make sure it's the right vision, obviously, and then determine whether people have bought into that mm. and are truly committed to it. And then I look for people who back themselves in. Right? So I do look for people who look to innovate, look to uh, to create, look to execute. I, I like to have doers. People who look at my teams and observe my teams uh, often comment about the how eclectic the team is. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe we're all there to learn from each other and teach each other. So therefore, God forbid, I don't look for clones for wrong. That would be a terrible thing to do. But I look for, for people who complement each other, augment each other 
and work well together. So I might have a terrific person who just doesn't fit in. That requires a call, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's interesting. I've actually moved into roles where the managers who have hired me or, or have departed have said, those people aren't any good. You'll need to move X percentage off uh, their roles or move them on or whatever. And I found them to be exceptional people who are probably in the wrong roles or haven't been managed well or whatever. And I found them to be um, have become terrific people to work with and to have working in the organisation because we've gotten that bit right. Mm. And then I've inherited organisations where the where I've been told that it's a terrific team that's actually underperforming. So you almost try and not be guided by that and make your own judgement on it, obviously, when you get in and determine the facts for your leadership. It's so important to be able to form your own opinion. And learning to trust that opinion too, I imagine. Absolutely. Because I'm sure you're not getting one version of the facts when you're coming into these sorts of situations. Yes, correct. So being able to form, you know, a, a judgment and not then be swayed will be really important. So that's the importance of triangulating information, yeah. right? So making sure that you've got enough data sources to be able to form a good opinion rather than just jump into a, a single source or, or a single opinion. So what was the hardest part about the storm recovery, reset, whatever you want to call it? What was the most difficult? I think it was a combination of things, two things in particular, getting um, the supporters and sponsors behind the vision uh, and believing that, that this person was here to actually save the club and not shut it down mm. and making sure that the playing group and the coaching group and the, the football administration, which, the, the football operations was the best in the country. There was no question in my mind that we had the best. We just had to keep them. And, and we needed them to believe in what we were trying to achieve so that they would play to the best of their abilities. And I had to create an environment to ensure that they were, they were doing their job to the best of their abilities. Now, the interesting thing there is part of the way I did that was to not get too involved. So I made it very clear to uh, Frank and Craig and the others that I wasn't there to interfere with what they were doing because my, one of my management philosophies is I'm not there to motivate people. Motivation needs to come from within. My job is to remove the demotivators the things that stop really good people from being great. And I had people who were really good people that were clearly great at one point in time, had their confidence shattered and their trust, and I had to restore that. So by leaving them alone and creating an environment where um, they could just be their best, I knew that they would perform, and hence minor premiership 2011 and premiership in 2012, all within two years of the salary cap ruling. It's unbelievable when you look at it. Like, I mean, it's funny, isn't it, looking at things in hindsight and going, that, I'm sure, makes it look a lot easier than it actually was. <laughs> so, like, oh, it can't have been that bad if they managed to correct that quickly. But it's more credit to, I think, how significantly you probably got to the root of the problem and rebuilt the foundations, you know, like clearing things properly out so that solid foundations could be relayed once more. Correct, let alone getting the commercials right off the field as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm interested in, like, one of the things I know that you're very good at and you have a reputation for is your ability to engage people in the vision and, and sell them on the idea. And I know, for example, I think Crown came on board as a sponsor for the first time um, having never sponsored a sporting organisation, I think, at that point, when right. you were at the helm. How do you go about getting someone to buy in, be that a staff member, be that an external partner you need to engage? I know it's not your job to motivate them, but it's your job to get them to um, to have the belief or the hope or whatever, the, the, the intangible that's going to make them engage. So, exactly. So 
Gee, I can answer that in two separate examples and I'll, sure. I'll touch the, the Crown one. But as you asked the question, what comes to mind immediately was the situation we had at uh, NMIT, or, which became Melbourne Polytechnic. I think everyone understands or anyone who who is in from that industry or involved in that industry would understand the uh, situation that Melbourne Polytechnic at, or NMIT at the time was in. It was effectively on the brink of insolvency. It had announced a significant debt and we had to let go of a significant number of people. I think we had 900 staff and we, when we developed the plan, part of the plan required us to um, let go of about 150 staff. And what was interesting is we, we addressed all the staff and we told them what the situation was. We were very honest about the dilemma that the Institute was in and the situation it was in. And we told them what the plan was. And part of that plan was that we were, we were going to have to reduce our staff levels from 900 to 750 and um, you know some other changes that we, we talked about at the time. And it was so important to get their buy-in because we wanted to make sure the process was smooth, that it, it was, it was, we minimised the impact on people. And what blew me away was the number of people who knew that they probably wouldn't have jobs at the end of it that became in, integral in, in the process. And I, I was very proud of the fact that we, we had those people still engaged to, to the end as part of the, the, uh, the restoration plan, which involved changing the name of the institute, taking it to, the, you know, to an international market. So, so I think that was probably a better example for me of getting buy-in. And we did something really good at the end too. We in, invited everyone back um, at the end of the year for the Christmas function. And we, um, we thanked them for being engaged and thanked them for being involved and, uh, and their, the role they played in the restoration, which I was, very, again, very proud of. The Crown one is, is, is a different example, but to your point there, it's really about understanding what the value proposition was going to be in the context of, uh, and, and, and again, I'm an old history person, so a context person, so I'll, I'll say that we went to experts, so what do we do with our properties? We've lost some sponsors, what should we do? And all the experts told us we should just do a lot of free community work, we should give our uh, spots away, our, our, our property spots away and um, and build a brand from that. And that was against my belief um, of having a, a confidence in your, in your worth and your value. And I always thought that if we had given that away, it would take forever to rebuild the, the value of the brand. Uh, we defied the experts and defied the evidence and we put a value on the, on what we thought was a property, bearing in mind what would success look like, and if we achieved it, what would that be? What value would they have at that time? So we worked backwards from there. So we put a value on it, and yes, we took some time to complete all of the the, uh, the property spots on the jersey and, mm-hmm. and and the branding, but we we got more than we asked for at the end of the day, because we got the value proposition right. So with Crown in particular, who had never sponsored a club before, we were um, getting rejections, obviously, uh, but we eventually addressed their requirements. We eventually got to a yes, and uh, and it was because we were able to understand what would be important to them and uh, and uh, deliver against that value. That, and what was supposed to be a one-year deal, and there's, there's still sponsors in yeah, 2019. Yeah, yeah. So, so eight years later. Yeah. And... Uh, and I also take pride in the fact that uh, they've extended that sponsorship to include the Rabbitohs in, in New South Wales. 
So that, you know, I, th- I think that speaks volumes about what value they got from the deal. I think that story maybe highlights one of my, my favourite little gems you've taught me, which is the, the power of that line, if I were to turn your no into a yes, what would I need to do? I think that's brilliant. That notion of how do you get clear on what someone's objections are and then make your job removing them. I, I just I haven't heard people, because I think the interesting thing is quite often when you get a no, that's the end of a conversation and there's very little understanding of why did we get the no? How could we move the no to yes? So it's such a simple question, but it totally puts the ball back in the other person's court and then gives you a much clearer picture of your playing field than what you'd have otherwise. Correct. And and let's be clear, Holly, that a no is a two-letter word that is an easy answer. So it's it's far easier for people to say no because it's convenient. It means I don't need to commit to anything. No, exactly, right? So so when you hear a no, you don't accept that as an answer. It's, that's an invitation, I think, to actually have a broader conversation. So hence the question of, well, okay, what would it take for it to be a yes? You know, ha- what would you need from me to change your no to a yes is such an easy question but it's a powerful question. And when you get them thinking about, well, what would it take to be a yes? You know what? If you can deliver that, then you have a yes. Exactly. Right? It sets the terms, doesn't it? Absolutely. For conversion. And that, that's what happened at Crown and it's happened pretty much all through my life where I've, I've learned to ask that question. So one of the things I was interested in, like you've, you've come into organisations that are um, not performing and, uh, you know, have a track record of, of um, creating that high performance, unlocking that potential. What are the differences in what you see in the habits and traits of high-performing leaders? What do they do differently to the people that you, you might yeah. find yourself in in an underperforming organisation? I have the good fortune of talking to this principle frequently with what I call my 10 guiding principles. So pe- people invite me to speak about the criteria for success. So I've, I've been very fortunate in my life to have come across amazing, sensational people, yourself included. Thank you. No, I mean that, that um, have influenced my thinking. And, and, and they come from all walks of life and they define success very differently. Everyone does. And I've learned from that. And from there, I've, I've picked what I think that are the, the 10 traits that seem to be consistent across the board. And it starts with people. It starts with the people I have around them. Right? So I'm a big believer that any, in fact, my experience is that any success I've ever had is due to the one, I think, skill I have, and that is finding good people and looking after them. So I'm a person who will hire someone who, do, who does their job better than I do. And I will surround myself with good people, positive people, well-meaning people. And I've cut out negativity. You know, I've, I've, I've cut out the things that stop good people from being great. So it starts with the people. The next step is about making sure that people understand what their role is and having people who believe in accountability for that role. So if, if, if the people around me know what their role is and what my expectation is of them and they're accountable for it and I put in place the criteria to measure that so that I can give them constant feedback, I think that's... And, the, and with feedback comes development. You invest in people. I think that's the second trait. Right? So, and I can keep going, but it revolves around people. And then it's about giving them the systems, the processes, the tools that enable them to be great and then removing the demotivators. So the, the, the successful people I've come into contact with have worked out how to actually shut out the negativity, shut out the demotivators and, and run through brick walls. You know? and, and for me, that's really important. Then the decision-making process. What I've found is people who are successful know how to make good decisions. And, and I, I'm a no data, no decision person. 
So it comes down to making sure that well, successful people exhibit these traits all the time. They don't rely on emotions to make decisions. Emotion might kick in at some point in time, but the reality is they go out of their way to get the information they need to make an informed, sound decision. So, so for me, they're the, they're, they're the principles. They have an ability to communicate really well. And with communication comes getting people to buy into their vision to get the support they need. But all those traits are the, the topics I talk to. So with the, I think they're brilliant, and I'm interested in your approach to the the blocking out negativity so you can run through brick walls. Um, again, you've dealt with some really high-profile clubs, institutions, companies. Uh, there's a lot of chatter that goes on when those appointments are made on the various significant decisions you make in executing your role there. How do you block out that noise? How do you block out the criticism, you know, the people throwing stones at glass houses, all that sort of thing. How do you personally do that? Well, it's easy for me to do that because I'm on a mission. I understand if I've come in on the back of a crisis and and the powers that be know that you've got a crisis, that, that, you, that they've hired this person to deal with, it's very easy to support that person, mm-hmm. right? And it's very easy for the, the troops to understand that person's here to do a job and that person's got the support of the executives, right? So... For me, it's a really easy thing to do to be very, very focused. Me being that way doesn't actually solve the problem because at some point in time I'm going to leave and there needs to be a continuation. So when I come into an organisation, one of the things I hear frequently from the troops is um, he'll be gone soon and we'll just get back to doing things the way we were. (laughs) You 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 hear that all the time. So it's really important for me to empower people and make sure that when Ron is gone, that it, there's a continuation of the vision and of the strategy. So, so for me, I, I love looking back and seeing legacies of my work, not because of what I did, but the people I put in place and the empowerment I gave them to continue the, the journey. I'm interested in your own kind of philosophy. You mentioned you've had so many significant influences that have shaped your life and the principles by which you live it by. Is there a, a particular uh, insight or um, observation of an individual might have been a mentor, might have been an early boss that has been kind of a fundamental tenet of how you've led over your course of your career? Great question. Um, firstly, I think I've learned more from the terrible bosses that yeah. I've learned from the good ones. And I've learned more from, from my bad experiences than from the positive ones. But um, I think I went back to teach at the at uh, St Bernard's of the set and I uh, had completed one year of teaching and my principal, uh, Brother Mick Godfrey, identified leadership qualities in me and he, he did something, he said, I'm going to give you a role that I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's not something I do lightly but um, I want to make you a year level coordinator uh, for year 10 and, and I was only in my second year of teaching. So, so he was a man with great vision and great leadership skills who identified that in me and he gave me the opportunity so lesson number one is you know what some people can surprise you give them the opportunity he put me on my path of a leadership position that uh, I'm forever grateful for I left teaching got into the IT industry I mentioned um, Daniel Petrie Daniel is an amazing visionary and was at the time he introduced loyalty programs he, he got us to do things he doubled the revenues of Microsoft in, in 12 months wow Um, by actually having a clear plan and strategy. I learned so much from Daniel at the time. And and 
subsequent leaders have have um, have taught me all sorts of different things. But at the end of the day, I think my biggest hero is my hero is my father, um, and I learned from him the generosity and and be generous and give people the opportunity. And if I've always said if if I can just have half his generosity, then I've done okay. I love that. What did your dad do? Uh, he he was studying to be an engineer in Malta. Um, and then at the age of 16, when the war was over and uh, he lost his father, was uh, sent to Australia, taken out of school, sent to Australia to start a new life for his family and, uh, and bring his mother over and the rest of the family. And he worked in factories and uh, worked through uh, day jobs, night jobs, just to get us all through school Wow! and, uh, and have a good education. The sacrifice, hey? It's extraordinary what that generation did. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, my family is forever grateful for that. We've lost him since. But, uh, but gee, um, we, we had a family gathering recently, a family reunion, and we relived some of the old photos and the experiences we had. And all of that started with this group of people coming from Malta, landing here, the other side of the world, starting again, not okay. knowing what to expect. It was very, very brave. We've lost that sense of adventure and that uh, sense of exploration today, I think. And I wanted to ask you about that. You know, if you reflect on, it's not necessarily even leadership confined to Australia at the moment and it may or may not be a segue from what you just said around kind of losing that adventurous spirit and that courage, but how do you reflect on the state of leadership at the moment? Well, I might put my history teacher hat on there, but I think that's that's exactly that's exactly where I, I, I do come become a little bit negative. I think we've lost that art of true leadership. We seem to be devoid of, of people who stand for principles, stand for something, communicate in such a way that people buy into that vision and then passionately go and execute. And I'm not just talking about politics. I'm, I'm talking about leadership in general. I, I come into contact with so many um, organisations and so many people. We've become managers, not leaders, and they're, they're very different concepts. Uh, we are in an environment today where we have all sorts of issues, don't we? We have we have unemployment, we have homelessness, uh, we have victims of domestic violence, we have a growing crime rate, um, we have a reluctance to embrace technology uh, for the, all the benefits, and you know this better than anyone else that I know anyway, that you know, we, we're missing these opportunities to, to solve social, cultural uh, and even economic and environmental problems. And where's the leadership? Where's the leadership in commerce? Where's the leadership in politics? Where's the leadership in, in society that, that, that takes us through this? I mean, the world is smaller than ever before. We have an ability to impact people more easily than ever before. Our communication, our, mes- our messaging can get around the world faster than ever before. And yet, I don't know whether it's bureaucracy, apathy, lethargy, um, you know, whatever it is, we seem to have pulled away from wanting to stand for something, believe in it, communicate it and execute it. So how do we spark a renaissance, do you think? What what will it take? Uh, Well, my experience, sadly, is that what what it always takes is a crisis. I've learnt that, that uh, things tend to happen when there is a crisis and they happen quickly. I'd like to hope that we don't have to go through a crisis. I mean, you know, we've seen wars, we've seen depressions. Uh, I would like to think we could get through this without that, there having to be that sort of crisis. But we've learned a lot from those experiences. And it's tricky too, isn't it? Because I hear that a lot. I'll hear leaders say, 
oh, we just need a burning, there's not a burning platform. You know, exactly your point, we need a crisis. And I go, well, depending on what way you cut the economy and society right now, I can give you a crisis. You know, some of the issues you just alluded to, you know, we should not be sitting by with the life expectancy gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians, with the rate of DV, with, you know, the growing social inequality. Um, it's so challenging to hear that and go, hold on a minute, can't, can't we move now? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, this is, this is a crisis in some form, isn't it? Well, it, it is, but clearly the crisis isn't resonating. Um, otherwise, I think there's enough good people in the world who are well-intentioned that have the ability to make a difference, but for some reason they're either in the minority or they're silenced mm. or they're not being heard. Now, the media has a part to play in that, but by the same token, social media is playing a significant part in, in communicating messages. So somewhere in there, again, whether it's diplomacy, bureaucracy or whatever it is, apathy, we don't seem to have that spark that's required to, to bring on change, even though, as you say, we are, there are enough crises around us, no question. So um, speaking of that spark or kind of, and I, I agree with you, I think there are so many well-intentioned people out there. And one of the things we love to sort of finish our podcast with is this call to action, you know, because our whole network of listeners are in this amazing group of people who uh, are working every day to be the change they want to see. What encouragement would you like to leave them with? What would you like to um, call them to go and do? Again, great question. I, I think let's just focus on the things that matter, right? Let's focus on the things that really do matter to us that are important to us. So if we think that any of those issues are really important to us, that we can make a difference, then let's just focus on that. So the call to action for me is actually more simple than that. It's about decision-making. The one thing I espouse, whether it's my children or the people around me, it's about the importance of making right decisions, whatever those decisions are, whether it's who my friends are, what jobs I want to do, what my causes are, whatever, let's get to a point where we focus on the things that matter and make the right decisions. And if people make those right decisions with the right information in the right way, with the right intention, I think we're on the track, on the right track. Because to me, at the end of the day, it's about the decisions we make. Yeah. And unfortunately, some people don't make the right decisions. Mm, good call for some self-reflection, I think, there. And a great note to end on. Ron, thank you so much for making the time uh, for this conversation. I think it's been a fascinating chat and to be able to tap into the wealth of experience that you've accumulated. I know leaders listening who are dealing with some of these challenges right now or who are thinking through um, some of the issues that you're talking about will be taking notes and be going, how do I show up and put some of these things into play tomorrow? So thank you for that generosity of sharing. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.